0: Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 8. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 8. And read it with me. Verse 1. Does anyone of you when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Pray with me. Lord of our salvation, we praise you. And we thank you that you've brought us together again to study your word. Oh God, apply this to our hearts, we ask you. Let us understand this text for your glory and for the sake of your son. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. In 2009, Jesse Demick, a, uh, a fugitive with murder charges, kidnapped a couple and then fell asleep where he was hiding them. The couple was then able to escape while he slept and. Once they had escaped, they decided to sue uh, Jesse Dimmock for kidnapping them. Um, in return, what Jesse Dimick tr- decided to do was to counter-sue them for, for escaping and ruining his plan. Uh, as if, well, if you hadn't escaped, we wouldn't have this problem in the first place. <laughs> um, and if you think that's a strange lawsuit, let me give you another one. In, in 2012... A husband sued his wife for giving birth to a very ugly baby. (laughs) And uh, he blamed his wife for the ugliness of their baby uh, because he said she had lied about her her cosmetic history and that he actually won the case. She was forced to pay him $120,000. In the United States alone, there are over 40 million lawsuits every year. And unfortunately for the Corinthians, things were worse in Paul's time. They had never heard of such a thing as turning the other cheek or running the extra mile or, or uh, placing the interests of others above your own. In fact, humility in that time was seen as a, as a shameful thing. It was a lowering, degrading thing. In fact, the word for humility in the Greek is, literally means lowly. And it was used to speak of slaves, of people who, who uh, had no value, no worth, no social status. That's what humility was to them. What was exalted in that day was, was pride. To think great thoughts of yourself and to have self-confidence in your victories over your enemies. In fact, winning or gaining justice was rarely the, the purpose of lawsuits. But... Gaining honor in the eyes of the world. Gaining respect in beating down your opponent regardless of, of what happens to them. That's what was exalted. And so, um, therefore, because money was not the goal many times, unlike America where usually it's, it's poor people who sue the rich people in order to get all their money, in their time it was actually the rich people who sued the, the poor people. Because it wasn't money they were after. But it was respect and honor in the eyes of the world as they destroyed their weak opponents. That's the world that these Corinthian believers had grown up in. And and, and Paul writes this passage to, to rebuke the Corinthians because unfortunately they hadn't parted ways with the world and they were actually suing each other, brother against brother, sister against sister, in court. And to do so they were going to secular courts to unbelieving judges to sue each other that's what this passage is about. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 1 to 8 gives us the Corinthians three levels of failure to resolve their issues, which will help you fix your problems with believers in God's way. I know that sounds confusing. Let me say it again. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 1 to to 8 gives us teaches the, th- the Corinthians three levels of failure to resolve their issues, which will help you fix your problems with believers God's way. That's what we're going to learn today. Now, the, te- the text is made up of, of nine questions that seek to tackle this issue. And, and I call them levels because each point gets worse than the previous one. Now, they're in question form because Paul is just in shock that the Corinthians were doing this. I, uh, I was tempted to title this message, What's Wrong With You People? Uh, in fact, you can, you can just say that's the title. And that is because if R.C. Sproul was, was writing this passage, he would just replace all these questions with that statement. In all of this, Paul is just simply saying, What are you doing? What is wrong with you people? So, let's begin with the first level of failure to resolve their issues. The First level of failure... Number one, acquiring help from unbelievers rather than the church. That's going to be verses one to three. Verse one, does anyone of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Paul is saying, when you have a problem with each other, do you dare to sue each other and take each other to to the unbelieving courts? Rather than going to the church, the Corinthian Corinthian world had their their ways of dealing with lawsuits. And everyone had to follow these ways. The Jews, on the other hand, had their own way also. And uh, the Jews believed, the Jews living in the the Gentile world, they believed that it was blasphemous to take their matters to the Gentile courts. Because they, they said, How could we do that if we have been given the law of God? And in fact, some Jewish rabbis concluded that it would be sin, that it would be unlawful to do that in light of Exodus 21. And so they were so adamant about this that the Romans decided to allow them to have their own uh, synagogue courts where they could resolve their issues. And they, they didn't have to go to the Gentile authorities. Now, the Corinthian believers would have probably been able to have their own church courts also because they would have been seen as a Jewish sect. And so legally, they would have been able to resolve their issues at church. But they were still deciding to go to the unbelieving world to do this. And so, Paul is saying in light of that, how how dare you do that? How dare you go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Now, notice in the verse that uh, Paul uses, the terms that Paul uses to describe the pagan judges, he calls them the unrighteous. And in contrast to this, he calls the church the saints. He is using words that place these two groups as complete opposites. The world speaks about racism and classes of groups. Well, the Bible says there's only one human race and two groups inside of that human race. The saints who are the children of God, who love God, and the unrighteous, who are the children of Satan, who hate God. And Paul is saying, how dare you go before the unrighteous who hate God and not before the saints and not before the church? How dare you go with the children of Satan who don't have the mind of God, who haven't received the Spirit of God? It's ludicrous. The church has the mind of God, the blessings of God, the gifts of God, the word of God. Is the church not enough for you? Is God not wise enough to help you resolve your problems? That's what he's saying. What is wrong with you people? And so, guys, we need to understand this. A judge or any person in power who does not know the Lord, who does not know the Bible, will never be able to preserve God's law. It's like that, uh, that judge on TV, uh, or it went viral. That judge who was asked in court, what is a woman? You all remember what she said? She said, I don't know, because I'm not a biologist. It's like, what? That's shocking. And in contrast to that, the, the newest believer can have a greater sense of the, of the will of God than the most trained unbeliever. So, Go to church to resolve your issues. The teaching here is when you have any problem, any type of problem, specifically with believers, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the unbelievers. Go to church to resolve your issues. Now we need to ask the question, is it always wrong to to take your matters to the secular authorities? The answer would have to be no. We see in Acts 25 and Romans 13 um, cases in which it was right to go to the secular authorities. But in those cases, those cases were life and death situations. What Paul is speaking about is, is the most trivial things that you can go through, the day-to-day uh, problems of life. So that's what he's talking about. When it's those simpler problems, go to the church. Go to the church. Now let's continue with, with our text. Now that Paul has rebuked them for what they're doing, he now gives them two reasons why they should be competent enough to settle their disputes at church and not have to go to the world for help. The first reason is this. The first reason he gives them of their competency is this. Believers will judge the world. Believers will judge the world. Look at verse 2 with me. Or do you not know, he says, and he will repeat this again, and this question was used by Paul to say something that they did know and they should have known, but they're ignoring or, or forgetting. What did they know? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? What is Paul talking about here? He's saying that when Christ comes back to establish his millennial kingdom, some way, somehow, believers will share in his authority to rule over the nations. Now, you may ask, well, how will this look like? Because this is talking about you too, If you're a believer, when you're glorified, you will judge the world. Okay? So how will this look like? Well, there are many different uh, interpretations, uh, but there is one that makes the most sense to me. Um, The Bible seems to speak of two types of people entering the millennial kingdom. The glorified saints who died throughout history in the Lord, and they will be glorified, perfected there, and humans. Fallen humans who entered the great tribulation, were converted through the tribulation, and survived the tribulation, and are now entering the millennial kingdom as as humans. And so, two types of people entering this perfect world. Yet, unfortunately, the humans will have a fallen nature, and they will have children and reprocreate the world and uh, repopulate the world. And their children will have to be saved, just like you and I have to be saved. Um, Revelation 20 says that at the end of the millennium, there will be so many of them that chose not to believe in Christ, that when Satan is released, he will deceive the nations and will will create what you could call the, the last battle between men and Christ. And it says that God will pour out fire from heaven and consume them all. And so, in between this time, during the millennial period, where there will be great, a re, great repopulation of humans, there will be a need for guidance and government. And the question that Paul answers here is, who will provide that guidance and government? To, to whom will Christ delegate his authority? And he's saying, to you. You believers. And you guys, if you're believers. You will be the governors and leaders and judges of the world. And are you incompetent? To settle this, the smallest law courts at church, really? You will judge the world, and yet you go to the world to judge you. Makes no sense. What's wrong with your people? Um, the second reason why they should have been able to settle matters in the church is that believers will not only judge the world, but second reason, they will judge angels. Look at verse three. He says. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Although there are different interpretations to this text, the word for judge, Grino, uh, speaks of authority over someone. And Hebrews 1.4 says that angels are ministering spirits to serve the saints. So again, in some way, somehow, we will share in the authority of Christ over the angels. To, they will serve us and help us to, to accomplish what Christ desires us to, to accomplish in the new, in the millennial kingdom. And again, Paul is saying, you're destined for this, and you, you're incompetent to settle the most trivial cases at church. And when he says uh, the word incompetent or not competent, look again in verse 2. Um, the, amp- the answer implied is, is no. Uh, you, it's not that you're incompetent, you are competent. You were you, you were born again. God saved you for this great destiny that you have. You are competent. God will strengthen you. You should have been able to do this. Now, uh, what Paul is saying is similar, similar to the teachings of Bathsheba to her so, son Solomon in Proverbs 31. And you can turn there. We're not going to spend too much time there. But um, if you want to see what she says. Proverbs 31 is a chapter that, was, that uh, has the teachings... It records the teachings of Solomon's mother, Bathsheba, to her son, who is destined to be a king. Chapter 31, verse 4. Verse 4. It says this. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. Now, that's another name for Solomon. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. Why is this? Verse 5. For they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. She's essentially saying, Solomon, live according to your destiny. You are destined to be a king. And it is not for kings, Olemiro, to do certain things. And so Paul is saying the exact same things. It is not for saints who will judge the world and angels to do certain things. It is not for saints to be incompetent, to not open. The smallest law courts at church and to have to go to be judged by the world. So live, live according to your de- destiny. Or for you people who play sports, uh, he's basically saying start, start playing according to the jersey you're wearing. <laughs> this is what you were made for. So the first level of failure was acquiring help from unbelievers rather than the church. The second level is this. Appointing unbelievers to judge over the church. Appointing unbelievers to judge over the church. And that's verses 4 to 6. Paul is going to tell them now that setting a law a law court in the church is not enough. It is not enough. You must now appoint faithful judges. But look at what they did, verse four. So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? The Corinthians were saying this. Oh, okay, we can't open our own courts. Uh, I mean. Um, We can't go to the Gentile courts. We'll open our own. That's fine. We'll just appoint the same guys. And you say, well, that's smart. You're doing the same thing as if you were going to the Gentile courts, just worse, because now you're setting unbelievers as leaders in the church. No, he's saying, kick them out and place judges who know Christ and his word. Now, who were these people who were of no account in the church, Or in other translations, it says that these people were despised by the church. Who were these people? Remember, in this culture, the people who were, who were elevated to the highest positions of authority uh, were the wealthy and renowned. And so what the church is basically doing is basically not leaving those standards of the world and bringing them into the church. And they're saying, well, who is the, the most popular, wealthiest, the guy with the most power? Let's set them up. They're not asking who's the most biblical, faithful, qualified elder man that we can set as, judge, as a judge over the people. They're not asking that. And unfortunately, it was, it was these, these people, these people who are despised or of no account in the church, um, who were uh, worshiping the idea of money and or honor primarily. They were the ones that cho- showed uh, partiality. And preferred the rich over the poor and who, who took bribes and who were, who were uh, wicked and looked down upon, upon the weak. And so Paul is saying, don't just open law courts at church, but get the right leaders. Now he continues, verse 5. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? Paul is being sarcastic here. If you remember the first chapters of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians thought they were the wisest people on earth. And now Paul is saying, wait a second, is there even one wise man in this place who can do something? And he's probably saying this because he he wants this to be sort of like an eye opener for them, for them to say, wait a second, we're not as wise as we thought we were. Now, continue reading with me. Because there are none of these biblical men, he says, verse 6, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? So there was this unity and murderous hatred in the church, and they were going to unbelievers for help. Why? Because faithful men, because of the lack of faithful, wise men, or because of faithful men who were not doing their job. If there were any of these men in the Corinthian church, they were not doing anything about these lawsuits, and were not, they were not doing anything about these evil judges being placed in authority. And so Paul is saying, is there one wise man in that place? And if there is one wise man in that place, are they awake? Are you seeing what's happening? Why are you not doing anything? This was the same uh, problem they had in the last chapter with the man committing incest. It's like, where was church discipline there? Where is church discipline here? Where are the wise men in the church? And as as an application for us, we learn here that when you have a problem, it is not just about going to church for help, but it's also about who you ask for help at church. Who is it that God wants you to go to for help at church? Does he want you to seek the most popular people, the most talented, the funniest person, that can help you. <laughs> Does he want you to go to your, to your best friend that comes to church with you, even though he doesn't know anything about the Bible? Is that what he wants? No. No. You need to seek, when you have a problem, especially with believers, you need to seek the most faithful, wise believers at church and ask them for counsel. Look at the people who know their Bible best and who live it out more, the most faithfully. Those are the people you need to gain your counsel from. And if I may encourage you guys, don't wait until you have a problem for you to seek these types of people. Look for the wise men and women at your church and ask them to disciple you, if I may encourage you. Ask your group leaders to take you through partners. They would love to do that. Proverbs says that uh, foolishness is carried in the heart of of a youth, basically saying that you were born a fool. How do you grow? In contrast to that, The righteous grow by walking with the righteous. So go and find these people and gain your wisdom and counsel and help from them. Now, let's continue. In all of these things that the Corinthians were doing, there was one problem, one issue that bothered Paul the most, that that shocked him the most, one level of failure which he found most shocking. Level three. Level three. Acting like unbelievers in the church. This is going to be verses 7 to 8. Acting like unbelievers in the church. In what way were they doing this? In what way were they acting like unbelievers in the church? And that they were suing each other in the first place. They were suing each other in the first place. Look at, look at what he says in the next verse. Verse 7. He says, Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Paul's talking in judicial terms. He's saying, you're so focused on winning and defeating your brother. Guess what? You've already lost the case. You've already been defeated in this. In what way? In that you're trying to destroy the brother for whom Christ died for. The brother with whom you've been united in Christ. And if you try to destroy a member of the church, you're becoming an enemy of Christ. Not only that, you're, you're dividing the church. Usually, if there was a lawsuit, it would have been a a rich guy and a a not rich guy. And uh, the rich guy would have usually offered services to the other members of the church. And so those people would go with him. And the other people would go with the poor guy. And so you have a divided church. And then you go out into the world and you horribly represent Christ to your culture. Why on earth would anyone want to believe in your Savior? You're all a bunch of hypocrites. Everyone has lost in this. Everyone loses In this. Guys, a believer who takes another believer to court or a believer who seeks to harm his brother or sister in any way, that believer forgets Christ, forgets the church, forgets the unbeliever who needs to know Christ and he's only thinking about himself. He is selfish, he is carnal, he is acting like an unbeliever. Regardless of the things, of the ways that he harms people he's still acting this way and we need to examine ourselves don't think that because you're not suing anybody or you're not being sued this doesn't apply to you this is talking about simply wanting to harm your brother or sister think about let's say the way you talk to your siblings who are believers do you ever say a comment that wants to that is intended to harm their feelings your, your friends who are believers, whenever they offend you, do you ever say things that are just offensive because you want them to be hurt? Let's say for older people who, who are married, do, when we have a disagreement with our spouses, do we ever say anything that wants to hurt the feeling of our of our spouse? You're acting like the guy who sued his brother He's, tro- he's looking, he's not looking for justice. he wants revenge. He wants to hurt his brother or sister. So we cannot. Do that. We need to forgive our brothers and sisters, and that's what we learned in the next half of the verse, uh, of verse seven. In contrast to the lawsuits, Paul now tells us how they should have been acting. And again, he does it in, in the form of, of a question. Uh, continue reading in verse seven. Paul is speaking to the offended party. He's speaking to the offended party. He says, "Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded?" The word for wronged means to suffer injustice. The word for defrauded means to to be cheated or, or robbed. And this gives us a little more of the context of what was going on here. A believer had cheated and robbed another believer in business. And so, Paul is saying, rather than fighting for your pride and for your rights and for your honor, why not rather take the offense and choose to love your brother? Let me ask you who was the person who who showed us the greatest example of this type of love who was the person who was defrauded and cheated by you and yet has chosen to pour out his grace on you who that's right jesus christ and yet he being infinitely holy and good and perfect, he being God in the flesh, the creator and sustainer of the world. He came to to die for wicked sinners who had defrauded and cheated him, who had who had sinned against him, and him being this glorious being, this perfect savior, this perfect champion. He, while well, he was being spat on and crucified and tortured and and, and scorned and mocked. What did he say? He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He being that person, he being who he was, acted in that way, and yet we can't be wrong because, well, how dare they treat us that way? How dare they offend us? How dare they go against my rights, some people might say. I say this with respect. You know what right you have in this life before a holy God? You have the right to go to hell. Everything else you get is grace. Everything else you get is grace. So get the idea out of your head that you can't be offended and you have all these rights and you're so valuable, no one can offend you and therefore you need to, you, you need to avenge yourselves. Get that, that idea out of your head and choose to forgive each other and, and love each other. Now, this does not mean that after you've forgiven people, you need to be best friends with them. And it does not mean that a person will have to stay in an abusive relationship because, hey, you need to forgive and love your, your, your brother or sister. No. It just simply means that to the degree that you can, you forgive that person. And that you don't hold bitter roots in your heart against them. Now, Paul just spoke in verse 7 to the offended party. To the one who was wronged and decided to sue. But now in verse 8, he speaks to the un- offending party. He speaks to the offending party. Read it with me. Verse 8. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Rather than loving Christ, rather than loving your brother as Christ has loved you, you choose to defraud and cheat and love, I mean, (laughs) and rob uh, your brethren. Rather than loving them as Christ has loved you. How dare you do that? He's saying. And then the next passage, he will speak of the thieves and the swindlers. And there's a possibility that he's talking there about this person who defrauded uh, his brother in business. And that, in that passage, he says that those people, thieves and swindlers, they will not inherit the kingdom of, of God. And so there's a possibility. He says that to warn this person. Watch out. Are you really saved? So we're going to go through that next time. But as a recap to what we've learned today in this passage. We have seen in this passage the Corinthians three levels of failure to resolve their issues, which, in contrast to how they acted, uh, these verses have taught us. We have learned how God wants you to fix your problems with believers. When you have a problem, first of all, you need to go to the church for help, not unbelievers. Secondly, now that you're at church... You need to seek out the wise men and women there to counsel you, to ju- judge over your problems. And lastly, you need to forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Let me finish this, this sermon uh, by giving you a short story on forgiveness. Corrie ten Boom was a German woman who lived during the Holocaust. She, alongside her father, and siblings, worked to hide Jews from Nazis who wanted to take them to concentration camps and ultimately kill them. Eventually, she was found out hiding Jews, and she, alongside her, her father and, and sibling and, and, and sister, uh, was taken to a concentration camp herself. And in this place, she was tortured and abused uh, with her family in this place, in this concentration camp, she had to witness her father and her sister die. And after uh, after the war ended, she became a Christian author and speaker. And uh, she writes in one of her books that one time she was speaking at a church. And at the end of the service, she looked to the last row and she saw the German guard from the concentration camp where she had been the german guard who had been responsible for the abuse and and the torture that she and her family suffered the german guard i've heard who was responsible for the death of her sister and she says that that after the service he waited until everyone was gone and then he walked up to her and and extended his hand to shake her hand and and said this he said uh, how grateful I am to know, as you say, that Christ has washed my sins. And she says that in that moment, she she couldn't raise her hand to shake his hand, nor could she smile. This man was responsible for for the torture that she had suffered. He He had tortured and abused and mocked and killed her family. How could I forgive this man? She prayed in her heart and and then she said, "This is how Jesus Christ has forgiven him, and will I ask for more?" And so she says that uh, she prayed for strength and the Lord gave her strength and and uh, she smiled at him, shook his hand and forgave him of everything he had he had done and I say this story because um, that is I say that story to say that is the The forgiveness of a Christian. That is a forgiveness a Corinthian believer should have shown shown each other. And that is a forgiveness that God commands you to have with each other. And again, how do we have such forgiveness? By having your eyes, by fixing your eyes on the Savior who has forgiven you of every sin and has saved you. Pray with me. We thank you, O Lord, that in you we have the perfect example of forgiveness. We thank you, O Lord, that you've forgiven our sins, that you have washed us of all of our sins. You are infinitely holy. We have sinned against you to to a greater degree because of who you are than that German guard sinned against Corrie ten Boom, and yet you saved us, and yet you came down to earth to die in our place, to redeem us, to give us eternal life. Oh Lord, help us understand that. Fix our eyes on, on Christ. Grant us wisdom to settle any issues we may have and, and to do so according to your, to your ways. Grant us greater understanding and awe of your love that next time, someone wrongs us or offends us, we may immediately say, oh, but I've offended Christ. I have sinned against Christ, and yet he has forgiven me. And will I ask for more? Will I not forgive those who hurt and offend us? Please, please grant us to love even as Christ has loved. Thank you again for your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.